the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You get podcasts of the program list of affiliates where you can hear the program and social media at Dan Proft show as well. And we begin tonight um, with uh, the uh, case against the two police officers in Atlanta, former police officer Garrett Rolf, who was fired and he was the individual charged with felony murder in addition to 10 other counts yesterday by Fulton County district attorney, Paul Howard and uh, his uh, uh, partner, uh, Brosnan, Devin Brosnan, who's already turned himself in as of today and uh, uh, believe Rolf has until 6 p.m. today per Paul Howard's presser yesterday. Uh, what um, uh, Paul Howard provided some detail that we didn't otherwise know, at least the prosecutor's case against particularly Garrett Rolf, but including Brosnan. One is the fact that Brosnan is turning state's evidence against his partner, that's a, a an important note Two, that uh, after Mr. Brooks was shot, you had Brosnan stand on Brooks and you had Garrett Rolfe allegedly kick Brooks. Uh, those those are two exacerbating facts uh, again, prove when if and when proven in a court of law. And uh, lastly, that the two officers fail to render aid to Brooks after he had been shot and was down for two minutes in abrogation of their responsibilities as police. So Howard laid out those new factoids, uh, I think, to help the public understand why he believes that a felony murder charge, essentially a depraved, indifferent to life murder charge, was appropriate in this case against Garrett Rolfe. Uh, Now, this is the fact that uh, the uh, argument, I should say, that the prosecutors are making that this was a bad shoot is not an opinion shared by all, including black law enforcement in Atlanta. And I give you Alonzo Williams. He is a black gentleman. He's also the sheriff of Burke County, Georgia. He said this about the uh, two white police officers uh, who are responsible for Richard Brooks's death. Brooks turned back to the officers and fired the taser. And we all know this is a third law enforcement agency I've been head of. And in every agency I've gone to, I've required every officer who who carries a taser to to be tased with it so that you understand the incapacitation. Five seconds. That's five whole seconds that if an officer is hit with that taser, that he all of his muscles will be locked up and he'll have the inability to move and to respond. And yet he is still responsible for every weapon on his belt. He, so if that officer had been hit, he still has a firearm on his side 
and the likelihood of him being stomped in the head or having his firearm taken and used against him was a probability. And so he did what he needed to do. And this was a completely justified is, uh, shooting. Completely justified shooting. Hmm. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brandon Tatum. He's a former Tucson police officer, co-founder of Blexit, and founder and CEO of the Officer Tatum LLC. Brandon Tatum, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. So uh, where do you come down based on what we know uh, at this juncture on the uh, shooting of Rashard Brooks in Atlanta? Do you agree with Sheriff Williams that that was a justified shooting? Yeah, I agree with Sheriff Williams a, a thousand percent. Really? It was completely a justified shooting. And anybody who thinks that it's not a justified shooting is either mistaking themselves or not looking at the Georgia law. In the Georgia law statute, it identifies a taser as a firearm and also a deadly weapon. And just not too long ago, the DA prosecuted officers and charged them for pointing a taser at college students um, on a traffic stop. He called it a deadly weapon and he said it was aggravated assault against those individuals. And now all of a sudden he's changing his tune as it relates to these police officers and Richard Brooks. This is a complete injustice to these police officers. And I think that the DA should be in prison for the things that he has said at that meeting, because he said that Rashard Brooks was peaceful, that he did not pose an immediate threat. As soon as they put him in handcuffs, he began to assault, he began to injure, he began to commit robbery against those police officers by forcibly taking a less lethal weapon from them. And he had no indication, no ability, I don't know, in his own mind that he would stop and he was going to use whatever force was necessary to prevent officers from arresting him. So they did exactly what they should have according to the law. He presented as a deadly threat. He shot the taser at the police officer, nearly missing his, the front of his face, which could be a, a deadly strike. Uh, what about uh, the arguments that, number one, he was fleeing, uh, number two, uh, with respect to the taser, whether it's considered a deadly weapon or not a deadly weapon, you have a partner, Officer Rolf had his partner in tow, who was also, it seems to be, calling for backup at the time that Mr. Brooks was uh, fleeing. So did those contextual factors, because as at, at least as this uh, district attorney said, uh, under standard operating procedure for Atlanta police, you're not allowed to shoot somebody in the back. And of course, Brooks got shot in the back. Yeah, so the DA is a complete fraud. So anything that he say at this point is irrelevant. We need to go off of the law and reasonableness. Now, a person who's just committed, you know, the probable cause existed to arrest him for DUI, mm -hmm. and then he began to assault police officers in a felonious manner, then he steals a, a less lethal weapon from the police officers. He begins to flee. Police officers have every right to chase him down. They don't need to wait for the helicopter. They don't need to wait for anybody else to get there. They have the ability, they have legs, and they have the right to chase him down and arrest him because he is presenting a threat not only to the police officer but to the public. He is so desperate to escape on a DUI charge, they don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to commit robbery? Is he going to commandeer another vehicle? Is he going to run to a, a known location in the area and get a firearm and end up in a standoff? These officers have every right to stop him. What about uh, the um, assertions that the DA made yesterday, and apparently they have video, they say they have video to back it up. We'll see what happens in court. But uh, video of uh, Officer Rolf kicking Brooks and video of Officer Brosnan standing on Brooks. Yeah, they're complete. It's a complete lie. That's why they didn't show a video. And that's why there's no video footage of it. They show a steel shot that could be perceived as him kicking 
Rashard Brooks. There's no indication. And there's a video that everybody in America can watch from the surveillance of the Wendy's parking lot. There's in no way that he just arbitrarily kick Rashard Brooks in any of that video. And then the officer's attorney second that and said that there was no point in which there was a kick that was made. And they like to use a play on words that he's standing on Rashard Brooks' shoulders, the second officer. There's no way that he got both feet and his entire body standing on the top of Rashawn Brooks' shoulders. That's not happening. Maybe he had his foot on him. All of that is appropriate um, when you're dealing with a person who's laying on the ground. They did render aid. Now, this gentleman is saying that they didn't do it within two minutes. It's a lie. There's video evidence of them trying to keep him awake and coaching him and doing CPR on him until the medical staff got there. These officers also did every precautionary step in order to get the medical staff there to render aid to him. And the DA is a fraud, and I'll say that a hundred times. These officers did what they were supposed to do. He's trying to make a political move, and this is the most fraudulent charge that I've ever seen in my life in law enforcement. I, w- I wanted to get to your your um, professional opinion since you experienced this. You know, we find out that uh, Rashard Brooks was convicted of several crimes. There's an interview he gave uh, several months back where he talks a little bit about trying to get his life back together after serving some time. W- is there any way that the officers uh, who rolled up on scene there would have known about Brooks's uh, criminal history? His, his would would have had access to his rap sheet to inform how they treated him uh, in that DUI stop? Well, I'm not sure how the, the Georgia police system works. On, a, on the Tucson Police Department, we would have known that. Uh, the dispatcher would have gave us indication that he's a, a convicted felon or that he was uh, he got arrested on you know various charges right. or that he was currently on probation. So those things would be available to police officers. But it really doesn't dictate how you treat a person until they become violent. Well, and so even yeah. if they knew that, they were very kind to him. He was kind to them and everything was going normal. Right. Right. Up until uh, they tried to put the cuffs on him. I just wonder if that, you know, because if you know that you may say, well, this guy is going to have a lot more incentive to resist, perhaps because he's a, a convicted felon and a DUI could send him back to prison where somebody mm-hmm. without a record, uh, there would be less, perhaps less reason to resist, try to run, try to get out of it. Yeah, I think it'll it'll give you an informed decision. If, if there was me in that situation, I knew a guy was a convicted felon, which I've arrested plenty of people who were violating their probation and was going to go back to prison for the rest of their lives. So it, it will give you an informed decision. But like I said, as a professional police officer, you treat them normal as long as they're being cool. You know, and, yeah. and many people that we arrest, they're cool. They take their licks, they go to jail, and they get out and they become a better person. They don't fight and try to kill police officers. This is this is not the way things should be operated. He is Brandon Tatum. He's a former Tucson police officer, co-founder of Blexit, and founder and CEO of the Officer Tatum LLC. Brandon Tatum, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, that was a uh, powerful statement that Brandon Tatum made about the uh, Richard Brooks case. We're going to have to have more discussion on that. That's not uh, my view on the case, but uh, that is a view on the case, and it's uh, one shared by many members of law enforcement across the racial spectrum, which is interesting. You have to give 
those law enforcement officers their due as well. Appreciate their perspective. But I want to switch gears here and, of course, talk about uh, what has Washington, D.C., the, the hearts of the D.C. press corps a flutter, and that is the prospect of John Bolton's new book and uh, the assertions he makes about President Trump's truthfulness, about his dalliances with dictators, about his competence to be president of the United States. The room where it happened is the book, a White House memoir. It is uh, being held up by DOJ, suing to prevent its publication because they assert it contains classified material. But sort of a moot point with members of the press corps getting their hands on the excerpts and with John Bolton planning on sitting down for a Sunday evening interview with Martha Raddatz that was previewed already by ABC News. Here's uh, Martha Raddatz giving us some of the highlights. Is the president lying? Yes, he is. And it's not the first time either. Politicians lying or being less than completely forthright. It must have shocked John Bolton, who's been around the swamp for a while. Not particularly compelling. Some of the specific allegations, though, need to be addressed, including uh, those from Bolton that suggest that um, Trump was a marked man by Putin. He thought uh, he could have his way with Trump, did Putin. And Bolton apparently believes he's right. Although, what does the record reflect? And that's a question I suggest you consider while you're hearing all of the assertions that are being made by Bolton. What does the actual Trump record reflect? Not whatever rhetoric was used behind closed doors, but what has Trump actually done policy-wise with respect to Russia or China or North Korea? In any of those, with any of those uh, enemies of America, have they gotten a one-up on America under Trump? Is there something tangible you can point to? How would you describe Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin? Uh, I think Putin thinks he can play him like a fiddle. Uh, I think Putin is uh, smart, tough. I think he sees that uh, he's not faced with a serious adversary here. I don't think he's worried about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, as we say, sees himself as a deal maker. What happened to the deal maker in those situations? Well, the president uh, may well be a superb deal maker when it comes to Manhattan real estate, dealing with arms limitation treaties on strategic weapons, uh, dealing in many, many other uh, international uh, security issues are things far removed from his life experience. When you're dealing with somebody like Putin who has made his life understanding Russia's strategic position in the world uh, against Donald Trump, who doesn't enjoy reading about these issues or learning about them, uh, it's a very difficult position for America to be in. Well, how has it gone over the last three years with Putin and Russia? His uh, revanchism was in full swing in the last uh, months of the Obama administration. What about during the Trump administration? And yeah, you're right. I don't know that Trump has held him out as some sort of Sino-Russian scholar, but he has been talking about uh, China's influence in the world and the threat China posed to America for 30 years. I mean, we'll go back and roll the Oprah interview from the late 80s if you want, Secretary Bolton, Ambassador Bolton. And by the way, with respect to Russia and China, you do have academics like Stephen Cohn, formerly of Princeton and NYU, who have been pretty positive about the aggressive posture that Trump has taken with respect to both of those American enemies, Russia and China. So, I mean, OK, he's not as intellectually curious as he should be or he's not 
as interested in delving into the depths of policy history or implications of policy choices, but he leans on people around him, and he's got some pretty good people around him, at least knowledgeable people. I mean, Pompeo, West Point, Navarro, who I don't agree with on trade policy, but he's a Harvard guy. He's not dumb. He's not ill-informed. He may come to different conclusions. So, I, you know, so what are the ch- uh, the, the, the exact uh, charges here? And uh, Bolton responding to uh, at least an excerpt of his response to the criticism he faced for not uh, volunteering to testify against Trump during the impeachment proceeding where he could have aired this all out rather than, uh, you know, waiting for uh, the midsummer surprise and the book tour. Bolton was criticized for not testifying during the president's impeachment last year, saying now it was because the focus was too narrow and politicized and that Congress should have investigated Trump for additional possible impeachable offenses, charging that Trump attempted to intervene in criminal probes with foreign adversaries as personal favors to dictators he liked. In his new book, out June 23rd, and in our interview, Bolton also says he heard firsthand from Trump that security aid to Ukraine was directly tied to his requests that Joe Biden and others be investigated by the Ukrainian president, which Bolton says he himself found deeply disturbing. Bolton saying he was alarmed at what he described as obstruction of justice as a way of life, adding that foremost on Trump's mind at all times was re-election. I am hard-pressed to identify any significant Trump decision during my tenure that wasn't driven by re-election calculations. One example, says Bolton, the president asking China's President Xi to buy soybeans and wheat to help win the support of farmers, quote, pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. Well, on that last example, that claim has been rejected by U.S. trade rep Bob Lighthizer, saying there was a meeting in on the outskirts of the G20 in Osaka between the president and President Xi, and I was at that meeting. Absolutely untrue. Never happened, uh, he said, of the allegation you just heard Martha Raddatz repeat. I was there. I have no recollection of that ever happening. I don't believe it's true. I don't believe it ever happened. I don't want you to think I'm being deceptive. I said what meeting I was at, and this never happened at it for sure. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the charge that uh, he looked through geopolitical decisions through a reelection prism, I mean, is that groundbreaking stuff? Is that uh, unusual for a president? The only thing unusual for a uh, president, not the only thing, but one of the things that's most unusual about Trump that roils people and leads to this sort of hyperventilation, even from, I mean, and I, I like John Bolton, been a guest on our shows many times, shows I've hosted many times, always good conversations, even when I disagree with him. And I don't know that he's being intentionally dishonest in any of these areas. Perhaps he has a different perspective. Perhaps there's some personal animus between the two. Uh, Perhaps he has different interpretations of uh, conversations because, uh, as I was sort of referencing, the one thing just where Trump stands in stark contrast to anybody who's ever been in the White House is the nature of how he talks publicly and in um, even privately in meetings with heads of state where you have a lot of other inquiring ears, some of whom don't have the president's best interests. Uh, particularly politically, at heart. 
Uh, we'll see if this has any legs. Uh, I sense this will be another in the long line of books against the Trump administration. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And um, despite the intense concern the D.C. press corps has for the scheduled Trump rally in Tulsa this weekend, and the suggestion that uh, states who have reopened are experiencing an unexpected increase in caseload and uh, suggesting that even suggesting that um, maybe lockdown policies needs to be need to be reconsidered, reinstituted. Well, here's some data. Hospital utilization by COVID-19 patients in New York City has fallen 94 percent since the peak. New York City has 29% of its hospital beds and 34% of its ICU units now available. New cases have fallen by 40% and new hospitalizations by a third in the last two weeks, despite despite the protests. In Texas, hospitalizations have been climbing, but weekly fatalities are down 40% from a month ago. COVID-19 patients occupy fewer than 5%, fewer than 5% of all hospital beds. More than a quarter are available. Even in Houston, which has experienced the biggest increase in hospitalizations, COVID-19 patients occupy 6% of the beds. More than 20% are unused. COVID patients take up a small share of ICU beds in most states that have reopened, including California, Texas, Georgia, Utah, Wisconsin, Florida. Not a single one of those states has less than 84% of its ICU beds available. Available. All the states have ample hospital capacity more generally as well. So what are we talking about? Uh, Well, to help us understand what we're talking about, we're pleased to be joined again by Chris Von Chefelve. He is an epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses and currently a VP of special projects at Star Schema. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Good morning. So what about that? What about uh, the data that we're seeing versus the way that it is being translated to the public by the press? On the whole, the data that we're seeing is somewhat unexpected. And that's largely because I think we have geared up for a much worse scenario than what actually eventuated. Partly, this is uh, data from the protests, which indicates that there have been large mass gatherings, but so far, and again, it's important to note, so far, so this might actually eventuate at some point later maybe, but so far it has not resulted in anything even remotely resembling the number of cases that you would expect from such mass gatherings. Now, why are these important? Because the way disease transmission works is a single mass gathering of 100 people has a very significantly higher disease transmission risk than 10 small gatherings of 10 people. So it it increases exponentially with the number of people participating. And somehow, 
it does not seem to have created this new wildfire of outbreaks everywhere, especially in the cities and urban areas that have had the uh, protests following the tragic Kendall flood. And I think overall that seems to indicate that we may have overestimated the risks from opening up. Now, obviously, opening up has inherent risks. So it's unsurprising that opening up does result in a rise in new cases in those areas. That's uh, Nobody expected that not to be the case. Uh, the overarching objective of flattening the curve was to ensure that when this opening up happens, there will be healthcare capacity remaining. It isn't being done too fast. And it looks like in most places, there is a lot of healthcare reserve capacity. Hospitals are not overwhelmed. Things are going quite good. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to, you know, when we come back, I want to get your take on um, a couple of things, including uh, a observation that Stanford epidemiologist John Ioannidis offered in a new paper about uh, the modeling that's been done from the beginning to the present. Uh, the modeling continues uh, and we're continued to be treated to models from agencies or institutions or individuals whose um, credibility probably shouldn't be as strong now as perhaps it was at the outset of all this. But we'll get your take on on what uh, Professor Ioannidis has to say uh, and uh, talk through a couple of other issues when we return with Chris von Chefelve, epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, who's currently VP of Special Projects at Start Schema. More with Chris right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with epidemiologist chris von chefelve who is a specialist in bat-borne viruses currently vp of special projects at star schema and uh, uh, Chris, uh, John Ioannidis, who was a highly regarded epidemiologist uh, until he started disagreeing with some of the models early in the early stages of uh, the pandemic, uh, offered this. In the presence of strong groupthink and bandwagon effects, modelers may consciously fit their predictions to what is the dominant thinking and expectations, or they may be forced to do so. Forecasts may be more likely to be published or disseminated if they are more extreme. And uh, by the way, this continues right up until uh, today. Massachusetts General Hospital model that predicted more than 23,000 deaths within a month of Georgia reopening. And it's been a month now. They predicted 23,000. Georgia has had 896. What about what uh, John Ioannidis observes? So I'm a modeling epidemiologist by background. So I built this kind of uh, model all the time. And so I have a little more sympathy towards modeling epidemiologists than the average person does. But 
I think it's important from the perspective of restoring public trust and public health that we face these accusations and challenges head on. And I think one way of doing that is there has to be a clear admission that most of the models have really been quite wide of the mark uh, in this outbreak. Now, this is a novel pathogen. It doesn't behave anything like uh, the similar pathogens that we know. Our model for how a respiratory coronavirus, a severe respiratory coronavirus behaves is of course SARS and to a lesser extent MERS, least respiratory syndrome. And because COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 has been so much faster to spread compared to compared to SARS and caused so many more cases, we have, I think, largely slid into the other extreme and be overly cautious. There is there's a little bit of group thing involved. I think that's uh, that's undeniable that there has been uh, that there has been a psychological element, I would say, and I think that's my. I try to have a charitable in, uh, interpretation on. Yeah, that. understood. And my, yeah, my, my charitable interpretation is that nobody wanted to be the guy who exposed people to a pathogen that could have been prevented. That's definitely a heavy burden to have to bear. While at the same time, I think being overly cautious is not always a safe approach. And if we consider the fact that people have you know, lost their livelihoods and lost their uh, jobs, some people are losing their homes, uh, people have not been able to good worship services, uh, people have not been able to uh, bury their dead, people have not been able to live their lives, really. Uh, children have not been able to go to schools. I don't think overall this has been quantified as well as the models have. The models are all about what we can win, and the cost was not anywhere considered. I, I think that's... That's a lesson for the future. Uh, I will hopefully, hopefully it's one that's learned uh, for uh, epidemiologists, uh, modelers to remember that uh, other people are three dimensional human beings just like they are. Uh, it, and, and, you know, you write about uh, you have a good piece at um, city journal.org city journal about uh, distrust and, uh, you know, where, where we're at now. So now you've got uh, because uh, people's credibility has been so shot in so many quarters and there have frankly has been a little bit of recalcitrance when it comes to admitting uh, how wrong some people were and some models were. You're an exception to that, but there certainly has been an unwillingness and and the press continues to promote the same people making some of the same predictions regardless of their track record. You know, when, when I see this week the FDA issuing guidelines that dogs, my dog needs to stay at least six, far, six feet apart from other dogs outdoors, uh, I'm a... I, I, you know, you, it's almost laughable. And now you're treating people in a position of expertise and authority, or at least they should be uh, as unserious people, because against the backdrop, that's everything that's happening. And frankly, everything we know, or even suspect you've got the FDA, rather than uh, focusing on communiques related to therapeutics or uh, the vaccine development 
or anything else that's substantive, you're telling me and dog walkers how to handle our dogs in a dog park. I mean, it's just it's the infantilization that is really unnerving, particularly uh, based on dubious science, if any, to begin with. And and so that that's the kind of thing where people just will dismiss anything that's coming from an individual or an agency that's supposed to have some sort of uh, authority and be conferring knowledge to aid in the overall effort. I agree. I agree. I think one of the things that one needs to keep in mind is this isn't the last pandemic. There's going to be, I can guarantee there's going to be another. Uh, I'm quite, I've spoken a lot about the fact that there will probably be one within the next couple of years. And there are worse things out there, way worse than uh, a respiratory coronavirus. And and this is why and this is why you write in your journal piece. This is why it's so important. You write public health must restore its reputation anchored firmly in fairness and disinterested pursuit of the common good before it's too late. And the before it's too late you're talking about is when we have something much more significant than COVID-19, much more lethal across all age and age and every other demographic than COVID-19. And we dismiss out of hand the people that led us down a primrose path with respect to COVID-19. Indeed, the problem is there are there is valid disagreement as we have to do that. There are people who are convinced that if we concede to errors, we basically cede all our epistemic authority. We cede all our ability to be trusted ever again. And then there are people, and I would consider myself to be in the second camp, who think that recognizing a mistake, acknowledging a mistake is the first step towards fixing that mistake and restoring public trust. He is Chris von Chefelve, epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, currently the VP of Special Projects at Star Schema. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your expertise and insights, as always. Thank you very much, Dan. Take care. Today's music ain't got the same soul. This is The Dan Proft Show. Get The Dan Proft Show podcast every day at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In uh, the event uh, anyone thinks Congress is the body to lead us to a deeper understanding of our common humanity, let uh, the following infantile, asinine exchange, and I mean both sides of it, disabuse you of that uh, naive notion. Black lives matter, period. And so I would yield to any of my colleagues on the Republican side who can unequivocally say, as we calibrate where we are right now, that black lives matter. Thank the gentleman for yielding. Does the gentleman believe that all lives matter as well? I think black lives matter. I think all lives matter. Reclaiming my time. Can anyone on the Republican side say unequivocally black lives matter? Unequivocally all lives matter. Why why is that a problem to acknowledge? Reclaiming my time. I, I think it's clear that... My colleagues on the other side 
would like to put up a straw man to not have the uncomfortable conversation that we need to have about race. I think it's clear that Eric Swalwell from California, who can barely control his bodily functions, uh, is a colossal demagogue and not a very good one either for someone who is uh, has a law degree. Usually you get better legal training than that. And uh, Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, who responded to the All Lives Matter, is uh, missing the point. And so this becomes a sophomoric exchange of refrigerator magnet slogans. Don't respond to virtue signaling pap with the same. Respond to it on point. You can be provocative. Uh, you don't. Uh, you don't. You don't bend the knee before Eric Swalwell, of course. But be substantively provocative. The competing sloganeering from politicians. How vapid is that? Where does that go? Such an opportunity to invoke uh, scholarship, uh, data, to provide context, to challenge uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, which is, you know, Swalwell imposing a straw man on others while using a straw man, uh, as if there's any disagreement. Since there's no argument there, let's talk about where there is argument, and that's on social policy and uh, fiscal policy and the government's uh, welfare state programs. That's where there's disagreement about uh, what they've done and what they should be allowed to do going forward. It's just the, the, the discourse continues to be debased when you allow it to be these fortune cookie exchanges. And Matt Gates should know better. I know Eric Swalwell can't do better. This is Dan Prof. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Prof Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. I've referenced uh, both of these essays this week, but they deserve to be referenced again. Update them with more examples of the purge. Andrew Sullivan's piece in New York Magazine, Is There Still Room for Debate? Talking about um, the Jacobins. Uh, they see America as, in its essence, not about freedom but oppression. This movement, this element, argues, in fact, that all the ideals about individual liberty, religious freedom, limited government, the equality of all human beings were always a falsehood to cover for and justify and entrench the enslavement of human beings under the fiction of race. It wasn't that these values competed with the poison of slavery and eventually overcame it in an epic bloody civil war whose casualties were overwhelmingly white. It's that the liberal system is itself a form of white supremacy which is why racial inequality endures and why liberalism's core values and institutions cannot be reformed and can only be dismantled, starting with the police, law enforcement in general, local, state, federal. Sullivan goes on to say this view of the world certainly has, quote unquote, moral clarity. What it lacks is moral complexity. 
No country can be so reduced to one single prism and damned because of it. American society has far more complexity in history, has far more contingency than can be jammed into this rubric. And so the way that you deal with moral complexity or historical complexity is just to uh, eliminate the complex portions of history the way Tim Kaine did, as we talked about yesterday in his speech on the Senate floor, where he said that America invented slavery. That certainly cuts out a lot of the messiness. So this leads nicely into the uh, piece that Matt Taibbi wrote uh, on his website. The American press is destroying itself. He gives a number of examples, but uh, this sentence is a useful top line and starting point. The American left has lost its mind. It's become a cowardly mob of upper-class social media addicts, Twitter Robespierre's who move from discipline to discipline, torching reputations and jobs with breathtaking casualness. Well, and he's got examples to back up that contention. We're pleased to be joined now by Matt Taibbi, who's a reporter at taibbi.substack.com, author of The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing, and co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast. Matt, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Why don't we start? I'd be interested in your take on Andrew Sullivan's commentary on American culture through the prism of the Twitter Robespierre's, to borrow your phrase. (laughs) Well, that's something that I've been really deeply troubled by in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, and it's gotten worse in, in the Trump era. For instance, in the the article, the uh, controversy over the editorial in the New York Times by Tom Cotton, people would say things to me like, there's no reason to print editorials by bad people. <laughs> and you hear this kind of language all the time now that some people are just bad. We know who the bad people are, and there's no reason to listen to them. It's like it, Potter Stewart's definition of pornography, right? I know it when I see it, so I know a bad person when I see them. There's no standard. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, they somehow have a an idea of what's bad and what isn't, and they're very quick to use terms like fascist or Nazi or neo-Nazi. And I mean, I understand where they're coming from. They they have some very deeply held beliefs about progress and progressivism, and they a lot of them are coming from a place of wanting to improve the world and all that. But, you know, the classical American view of how we get to a better place as a society is by listening to each other and debating and talking things through. And there's no way you can ever do that if you're deciding in advance that everything someone else has to say is not worth listening to. And I think that's where you get these attitudes like deplorables or Joe Biden saying 10 to 15 percent of people aren't worth listening to or, or just bad people. It's kind of a new feature of American life, actually. This is intense pessimism about who we are and and who's worth listening to. Um, As a published author yourself, and you've worked for a number of uh, high-profile positions and high-profile outlets, you know, when do they come for you? Well, I've been, quote-unquote, canceled a couple of times already, uh, so it's a little late. I mean, I, I, of course, worry about it. I think the thing that any uh, author worries about never it's already impacted my career significantly in terms of things like speaking opportunities mm-hmm. uh, opportunities at, at publishing houses freelance opportunities all of those things but it, it, you know, it's past the point of no return now and I think anybody who is going to you know speak his or her mind about any issue just has to be prepared that there might be consequences you know for me 
in the last four years, uh, I had, there was a tremendous chilling effect between myself and my colleagues when I dissented about the Russiagate story, which mm. I wasn't even really covering. I just, from afar, didn't think that there was a whole lot of meat on the bone with that story and started to say so. And I was troubled by some of the sloppy reporting about it. And, well, you know, it was sort of very roundly condemned by everybody in the business. And the, the odd thing about that is that once upon a time in journalism, it was considered a virtue to disagree with one's colleagues in a way that was you know, brave, right? And that further debate and all those things. Now, and that's not a virtue at all. People do not want you to disagree about things, which is strange, I think. You know, it's one thing for sort of the blue check mafia, uh, as it's termed by many. It's another thing for people in lofty positions that uh, you would think would be more measured or more thoughtful or more insulated so they could uh, stand up against the mob. But as you look at the hierarchy of media institutions and other cultural and civic institutions, you just don't see much of that. Shouldn't that be very troubling uh, in terms of how that could be manipulated uh, and, and influence our system of governance? Yes, and I, th- I think a lot of us in journalism who laughed at the, the issues that were coming out of academia, you know, when, when we started to hear stories about uh, things that were going on campuses about professors getting fired for for minor offenses or being or being sidelined for minor offenses, put on leave. Um, a lot of us thought, okay, well that's just academia, and it's just a bunch of kids who are going, you know, going a little bit too far with their political opinions, and we didn't take it too seriously. Now it's it's this kind of same kind of thing is spread to a lot of different institutions. You're finding a lot of institutions now have established committees, you know, diversity and equity committees that sometimes do really good work because they're cleaning up institutions that have long-time records of not hiring enough minority applicants or the pay is unequal, and all those are good things. The the the, the issue is when they it starts getting into the intellectual content and you start getting repercussions for thinking the wrong way or saying the wrong thing. You know, that this is part of the backdrop of the Lee Fong story with the intercept. Um, you know, you, the, the New York times story grew a little bit out of, out of this issue. And then you, you're still seeing in academia where you had that thing going on with at UCLA where, you know, a professor is, is uh, placed under investigation for reading, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail allowed uh, because it had the N word in it. I mean, there's, there's just, there's a, there's a new, a secondary issue. That's not just about Twitter. It's also about the bureaucratic structure of companies and institutions. Uh, and that's another, that's a, that's a, a huge uh, additional feature to this whole problem. Uh, when you say uh, earlier, we're past the point of no return when it comes to um the allowance for objection, whether it's in a newsroom or in other settings, um, when you pass the point of no return. So, so how does it end in your view? Well, I think there's just a profound pessimism right now, um, you know, on what we would call the, the political left or among traditional political liberals. Uh, and there's a, a sort of a profound desire for confrontation with the other side so 
you know, that whole legacy media segment, I, th- I think what is probably going to happen is that you're, you're going to see institutions like the New York Times are going to radically transform themselves and stop being uh, giving any kind of nod to um, opposing opinion, opinions. And you might see something else grow up in its place, like alternative news structures, a new kind of independent news media that isn't particularly left or right. That might happen um, in, you know, in the future. But for right now, I think you're going to see a hardening of of takes on both sides um and i, I don't know I'm, I'm pessimistic about it kind of for the first time in my life i i, I don't know where it's going but it, it doesn't feel like it's going to a good place no it doesn't matt taibbi reporter uh, taibbi.substack.com author of the business secrets of drug dealing co-host of the useful idiots podcast uh, matt uh, excellent piece on the american press and thank you for joining us again appreciate it thank you Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. More than 1.5 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. Uh, a little bit more than economists who were survey predicted, forecasting about 1.3. That brings the total. Job losses since the uh, shutdowns began to about 46 million. And it also indicates that, um, you know, the damage to be visited upon individuals in the American economy at the, in the macro level is far from over. Although the slight silver lining, uh, it marks the 11th straight weekly decline of Americans seeking jobless benefits since claims peaked at the end of March. But, um, Okay, it's declining, but those are still substantial numbers, and the the aggregate numbers are astounding, frankly. So I don't know. I'm I'm not um, one given to uh, fits of frenzy, but when you're talking about states that have twenty and thirty percent unemployment rates, and you know, and you're talking about even the the perhaps rosy prediction from the Fed of. Uh, 9.3% unemployment at the end of the year. That's how low we may be able to get to their sort of best case scenario. That is substantial. That is a lot of economic devastation for for what looks to be an extended period of time. This is not inconsequential, and it's not nearly enough a part of the discussion about COVID-19 policymaking as it should be, in my view. But what do I know? I'm just a guy who talks on the radio. Let's talk to somebody who's a credential to speak to these things. He is our friend Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And again, uh, you can always uh, catch Don's musings at CafeHayek.com, which is a, a great blog. Don, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Always happy to be here. Uh, what about uh, the uh, unemployment numbers and um you know what we should um, what we should take from them in terms of level of concern. Well, I think we should be really concerned. Uh, these are, uh, you know, some states that, that that have the numbers you just mentioned. You know, in the in, in the in the double digits, twenty you know, percent. 
This is approaching Great Depression levels. Very few people alive today remember that. So this is completely unprecedented for people alive today. Uh, I think this is going to make the the 2008-2009 Great Recession uh, uh, tiny in comparison. Uh, and, and as I've said on this show before, the, one of the unfortunate facts is that a lot of this is self-inflicted, uh, directly self-inflicted. The government shut down the economy, uh, not just due to government policy mistakes in the housing market. This is the government saying, we're going to shut down the economy. And then you get these horrible numbers, and people act as if they're surprised. And there's no reason we should be surprised. These are really bad figures. And and it's it's it, it's really just disheart, disheartening. Well, there's another layer to uh, the how disheartening it is for me, which is to say, yes, uh, they're self-inflicted, they're government-imposed, and popularly supported in most places. Yeah. Phil, Phil Murphy in New Jersey, the governor of New Jersey, uh, in on the Jersey Shore the other day. And I understand some people are upset as they're just finally moving to allow outdoor seating at restaurants in Jersey this week. I know some people are upset, but, you know, most people are with me. And he's right. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, people, this is true throughout, but somehow it, it reached new levels during the coronavirus crisis. People have a very difficult time putting things in context. Yes, the coronavirus is, is, is dangerous. So, too, is not going to work dangerous. So, too, is driving in a car dangerous. So, too, is skiing dangerous. Uh, we have somehow focused on the coronavirus and elevated it to an existential to an existential threat. It's not an existential threat that people think it is. The Wall Street Journal recently had a piece up with the exact numbers where they put the threat of the coronavirus in perspective, and it's 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 just not unusually high for most people. For some people, it is. For very old people, for people who are ill, it is unusually high. But for most people, it's not unusually high. You don't shut down an economy. You don't shut down schools. You don't shut down workplaces for something that is, is, is not the existential threat that it's presented to be, but the media presents it as an existential threat. As long as people continue to believe that, they will follow these absurd policies of staying home, sheltering in place. And uh, now uh, we're being lectured on uh, free markets by a former Danish prime minister, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, writing in the Wall Street Journal, as Western countries emerge from the first wave of COVID-19 infections, governments must turn their focus to a new objective of turbocharging the economy and restoring more freedom than they've taken. The task is urgent. I've never seen an economic situation this dire in my lifetime. He goes on, my best, by best estimates, it will take many months before a vaccine is ready. We simply can't afford to wait for complete safety before getting back to work. Lives and livelihoods are intertwined. And recessions are also associated with homelessness, suicide and mental health crises uh, for all of those uh, Democrat socialists who want to model America after Scandinavia. Well, there's your model. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 something when we Americans have something to learn from from uh, a former Danish prime minister. Of course, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries have never been the socialists in the way. Not recently. In right. Right. Go the I think one of the best. Uh, analogies that I've ever seen about this comes from another Wall Street Journal person, Holman Jenkins, who many weeks ago said, look, you can't, you, you, a, a good model for going forward is not put your head into a tank of water and you're safe for as long as your head's in a tank of water. But as soon as you come up, there's a danger, right? That's just not a way, a way to go. And that's, that's the impression that, 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 that we have now. We're, we, the government seems to think that we can just shut down, somehow wait for the thing to go away or some vaccine will arise. We can't depend upon a vaccine rise. We have to get on about our regular lives get, and, 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 and have 
decentralized uh, means of dealing with this virus. Let people who are truly vulnerable um, be isolated. They can isolate themselves. We can help them isolate. But you don't shut down an economy wholesale. And that's what happened. It's just a calamity. And so um, your review of these sort of uh, Hobson's choices that have to be that that, that are that are, are, are being presented to policymakers on both the fiscal and monetary sides of the House on the fiscal side, the talk of, uh, you know, one trillion, two trillion in infrastructure spending as stimulus on uh, the other side of the House. Uh, uh, Jay Powell suggesting uh, basically uh, another round of checks should be sent to Americans in addition to his willingness to buy up corporate debt, his willingness to use the seven trillion dollars in liquidity that the Fed has setting up these municipal facilities and other facilities, Main Street facilities for bigger companies. Um, this is, uh, uh, you know, sort of all government financing all the time on both sides. Yeah, look, prosperity does not come from smearing green ink on paper. It does not come from government writing checks. It comes from people being free to innovate, go to work, spend their money as they choose, and have entrepreneurs meet consumer demands, have people go to work to work for those entrepreneurs to meet, to, 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 to meet those demands. There's, of course, a role, some role for the government maybe to do this or that. But the notion that everything's going to be okay or that there'll be major benefits from spending yet more money, from injecting yet more money into the banking system, that's just nonsense. As long as the economy is locked down, as long as the economy has regulatory uh, uh, and dictatorial, in some cases, restraints on it, we will not get prosperity back. We will not get this economy rolling back to where it ought to be rolling. He is Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason. Don, and again, CafeHayek.com for uh, Don's writings and uh, those of others. Don, thanks for joining us as always. Always a pleasure. I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 you believe. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, there are a number of categories under the heading police reform. One of them that's uh, been discussed a bit, including on this show, including uh, the other day when we had uh, former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark on, is the so-called militarization of police, the programs, uh, federal programs that provide for military-style equipment for state and local police departments, in some cases, not limited to even law enforcement, uh, also including administrative agencies at the federal level, as well as at the state and local level, too, which has uh, raised the concerns for a long time, actually, of uh, libertarian leaning types, including myself. For more on this, get the exact nature of the programs and the uh, possibility of reforms to how they are operates how they uh, how they're administered but in the context of understanding whether or not that would actually improve policing or strike a better balance between police and the citizenry because remember that's the backdrop we're having this discussion is will this make policing better 
will this inspire more confidence in policing among the citizenry? Those are the questions, not just reforming for reform's sake or changing for a change's sake. Uh, so for this discussion, we're pleased to be joined by Aaron Davenport, who is a uh, senior policy re- researcher at the Rand Corporation. He served as a White House special advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism from 07 to 09. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure. Uh, you and a colleague of yours at uh, Rand uh, uh, authored this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where you broke down just exactly how the 1033 program, uh, as it's named, works. And so why don't you just sort of give us that primer so that we can have a discussion about uh, whether it's uh, working uh, in a sensible way or needs to be reformed or even perhaps eliminated. Sure. Would you like just an overview of the, like the mechanics of the program? Yeah, or did you want exactly. What, more what, of the history what, of it? Or? Well, what, what was the inspiration for it and then how it, does it to function in practice? Sure. Uh, the whole point is to, uh, you know, efficiently uh, reutilize or uh, dispose of excess property that's coming uh, from the military. Uh, as, uh, as many know, the military's supply and logistics systems uh, system rivals uh, major corporations to global network. They uh, process uh, uh, thousands of items uh, all over the world as the Department of Defense um, demand for certain items uh, increases or decreases. In this case, uh, there is a whole staff in Battle Creek, Michigan, that manages the uh, reutilization or the uh, disposal system for all the excess property that comes from the military. And this can come from base closures to a change in uh, uh, tactics to an end of conflict uh, to um, uh, modernizing our force and uh, obviously with a, with a large number of uh, forces deployed, they have to hold on to a lot of equipment so they can get it to the warfighter um, quickly. And so um, the excess property comes through and um, there's a uh, actually a fairly small window. They have 42 days to uh, uh, dispose of it. And it starts with uh, seeing if anyone, any other agency within the Department of Defense would like it, and that's in the first 14 days. And then there's some special programs that have been identified through uh, primarily, you know, legislative action, and uh, they, they, one of them includes uh, the law, law enforcement um, uh, support office that provides excess property to uh, law enforcement. And this has been in existence since uh, 1990 when uh, we had an uptick or, or surge of drug smuggling organizations or criminal networks that were um, uh, heavily armed and violent. Uh, um, I want to pick it up there sure. when, when we return, uh, talk a little bit about so how police uh, at the local level are obtaining some of this uh, this uh, uh, military uh, equipment and just the then how it's actually worked in practice, because you've 
you at the Rancorp have recently did a review of the program uh, uh, right after the unrest in Ferguson six years ago. So we have some relatively recent assessments of the program that should inform the discussion in 2020. More with Aaron Davenport. He is a senior policy researcher at Rancorp, served as White House Special Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. And we'll be back with them right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Aaron Davenport, who is a senior policy researcher at Rancorp, served as White House Special Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism from 07 to 09. We're talking about the 1033 program that provides military equipment that's been retired to local law enforcement. Interestingly, uh, per this op-ed that uh, Aaron penned with a colleague, it's a small percentage of the nation's 17,000 law enforcement agencies that participate in the program, only about... Uh, uh, 3,000 of the 17,000, less than 15%. And an assessment was done on the program by Rancorp after the unrest in Ferguson six years ago. And Aaron, what were the top-line conclusions of that assessment? Yeah, the top-line conclusions is a, uh, a efficient and effective-run program for the Department of Defense. It's a very responsible way to uh, properly uh, either reutilize excess equipment or dispose of it. Uh, and it's been in existence, started in 1990, and uh, the, the program that exists today has evolved over time and is highly effective. Obviously, the problem with it is that that can't be solved by the Department of Defense is whether the equipment is appropriate and appropriately used by our law enforcement agencies is there any evidence, and I, I don't know if you looked at this question, but is there any evidence that those, uh, the, the, those law enforcement agencies that obtain this military equipment uh, have a higher incidence of excessive force or a higher incidence of police misconduct of any sort as compared to those who don't? Uh, that's not something we specifically looked into. We were asked to look at what was being transferred, how it was being acquired, what was the process, look at suspensions, terminations, uh, we also did a public opinion survey. So uh, the Department of Defense and Congress did not ask us to determine whether uh, we thought that police were doing were being militarized. Obviously, it is a, is a central question uh, with this program. I think part of it was uh, we, as a nation, haven't agreed on what militarization is. Is it the appearance of the equipment? Is it the tactics that are used by the police, or is it a military culture? I don't think we've come to a consensus on that. That seems to be it. Seems to be the latter argument that's being made now about uh, the militarization of police. I mean, there are certainly some incidents, but I don't know that, uh, that of of, uh, of of excessive force that are being discussed. But I, I don't know that our, and and talk about police culture and police being trained like uh, you train military. But I don't know that that specifically uh, implicates this program or military-style equipment. I don't know that equipment makes you more militarily oriented than 
you would otherwise would be. That doesn't, I, I don't know that anybody's really established any nexus there. So it's sort of a curious argument if the real concern about the program is, is one of efficiency and uh, integrity. And if it passes the efficiency and integrity uh, uh, thresholds, then, uh, you know, just because you have a Humvee that looks like Humvees that we saw in, uh, you know, the wars in, in the Middle East uh, doesn't mean that your police are now more military than they are civilian police, I suppose. So one of the first things we did, Dan, is we looked at all the literature and, and what people are saying and the history of the program. And we did find that, and uh, the Department of Justice did do an investigation after Ferguson, and, and, and it, it was found that um, this type of equipment, military equipment, does tend to um, exacerbate um, situations depending on what they are. Um, and uh, the public opinion poll that we did, uh, about half the respondents um, are concerned about uh, the transfer of lethal equipment. Yeah, but is um, it, it? I mean, but the majority. Yeah, I mean, I just, oh, I just, I just, I just, I just want to interject because. I mean, you know, this is the the same Justice Department, though, in the Obama administration that w- wants uh, every police department under a, a federal consent decree. I mean, and then and then so they they take a position and politicians articulate a position and that influences the opinions of a handful of a, some percentage of the American public who still don't really understand the underlying nature of the program. I I just wonder if this is this the debate is sort of. Um, not the most productive one because it really doesn't have to do that much to do with police reform. It has a lot to do with perception, except to the extent you might argue the perception of police is part of what needs to change. And so if that means removing some military style equipment and that would enhance people's trust in the police department, then OK, I guess that's a worthy debate. I just don't know if that's really sort of the top, you know, in the top 10 of things that people want done to inspire more confidence in their local police. Well, with this program, the majority of the equipment is not uh, uh, what we would think is uh, military-looking equipment. Mm-hmm. Most of it is, uh, you know, office supplies, uh, first aid equipment, uh, non-lethal equipment, uh, earth movers, um, a lot of equipment that some of the smaller law enforcement agencies um uh, use and uh, otherwise would not be able to afford. I think some of the things that make it in the news um, uh, or create the attention of the media are the um, control equipment, which includes uh, uh, military-looking equipment that actually has been demilitarized, but the appearance for some um, may escalate uh, the their yeah. Concerns. Yeah. Are controlled items which stay within the control and inventory of the Department of Defense. That's obviously a smaller percentage, but it's the equipment that I think we're referring to. And you referred to the um, mine resistance ambush protector. Uh, these are 500000 to $1 million each to purchase this commercially for a law enforcement agency. And these are used for varied reasons, but they include high water rescue, hurricane response. And we, we were, did not find, interesting enough, is we did not find that 
any of the equipment that has been transferred was actually used in any of the incidents that were up in the media. It's not saying they don't have the equipment, but the actual equipment that was transferred was not used in Ferguson or any of the other incidents that may have been cited. Interesting. He is Aaron Davenport, yeah. senior policy researcher at Rancorp, served as White House Special Advisor for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism from 07 to 09. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, an unusual pair, but uh, Herschel and Henninger, Herschel Walker and Dan Henninger, both uh, making some keen observations. Herschel Walker, the Heisman Trophy great, played 12 years in the NFL. I have an idea, writes Walker. For all those people who don't want any police, I'd love to meet with American Airlines, Delta and Southwest and make a deal to fly them to countries that don't have police. I want them to be happy. <laughs> Hmm. And on a more sober note, Walker added, we're civilized people. Why can't true congressmen and women and senators get together with leaders from all ethnic groups, both left and right, to find solutions? Unless certain people in Washington don't want to see a change. I'm volunteering myself as one of the black leaders. And his son, Christian, Herschel's son, Christian, could fit right along with that uh, descriptor, black leader. He uh, writes of um, the looting and the uh, the violence. My dad grew up in the deep South as a poor black man and turned himself into a noble, notable athlete, I'd say, businessman and person. No, I don't feel bad for quote unquote oppressed people who run around burning buildings down. I'm not sorry. I'm grateful for my country and the opportunities it's given me. Well, um, some people uh, maybe who don't want to see police defunded, but also don't want to live in urban centers that are disproportionately the location of the violence and the civil unrest. Dan Henninger has another outstanding piece in the Wall Street Journal, The Coming Urban Exodus. It, it had been happening. He uh, notes that um, demographers like William Fry of the Brookings Institute noted that uh, migration into large metropolitan areas that occurred between 2010 and 2015 had been reversing prior to 2020, prior to the last six months of pandemic plus uh, civil unrest. Henninger uh, notes Boston, Chicago, L.A., Miami, New York, San Francisco, Washington, all leaking people, more than leaking in Chicago, where I live. Chicago, lowest population level since 1920 in 100 years. But he goes on to say that that is going to the leaking is going to be flooding soon enough. Why? Because, as Henninger writes, in just three months, it has become clear that the modern urban progressivism is politically incompetent and intellectually incoherent. For example, in New York, with blocks of stores boarded up and cherry bombs exploding nightly everywhere, the city council has agreed to cut the city's police budget by a billion dollars or one sixth. How hard is it to connect the dots? Connect the dots of incoherence is what he means. Through the pandemic and now the protests, much of the urban based media have become bizarrely invested in apocalyptic storylines picking scab after scab and problem after problem with not much effort at sorting substantive policy alternatives other than heading deeper into the progressive frontier. And it's been like that, I would say, for 50 years. The unhappy result, Hanninger, 
The unhappy result as young families and well-off retirees leave is that these cities will increasingly become more divided between upscale progressive singles able to afford the political incompetence and the residents of inner city neighborhoods that will fall further behind. For those of you who always wonder what the 1960s were like, you're living it, but this time without much love. There's a shout out to Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. This is Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. One of the uh, disagreements between... Congressional Republicans and Democrats over police reform is on this issue of qualified immunity, removing qualified immunity for police officers. This is uh, something that Tim Scott described as a poison pill for police reform legislation over the weekend, not included in his legislation as advanced. But, um, you know, a little bit of the legal history of qualified immunity maybe would uh, provide the moment for some reconsideration from those just reflexively opposed to it because Democrats are for it, for its removal. It um, really uh, was advanced by the very liberal Earl Warren court. Uh, Pearson v. Ray in 67 relieved state officials from civil rights liability unless their actions violated, quote, clearly established law, unquote. That's the qualified immunity that everybody is talking about, many of whom don't know what they're talking about, but they're using the phrase, as is the case with these discussions. And uh, the qualified immunity has created uh, some externalities, clearly established law. That's the key phrase. For example, police officers have escaped liability for sicking an attack dog on a suspect sitting with his hands up. A previous case had found a Fourth Amendment violation, but the court held precedent didn't apply because the suspect in the earlier case was lying on the ground, not sitting on the ground. You see, they're clearly established law, so the facts in these cases have to be on point with previous decisions in order to obviate the qualified immunity. And that becomes a problem. It creates cases that clearly the police should not enjoy qualified immunity. In an example, another case, police stole a collection of rare coins while executing a search warrant because such larceny by officers had not arisen in a previous case. The court reasoned the plaintiff's right not to have his property stolen by police was not, quote unquote, clearly established. So that creates a double standard. We don't like double standards when it's politicians above the rule of law. We shouldn't like it when it's anybody above the rule of law. And so maybe there should be some consideration for how qualified immunity has developed I mean, the law behind the body of law behind qualified immunity has developed. And again, as Sheriff Clark, former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, um, argued yesterday, uh, the police officers, the individual officers aren't the one with the deep pockets. It's always going after the police departments. Well, that's true, but it doesn't mean that police should enjoy individual immunity where they shouldn't. It also makes the frankly, the cases out against police departments that much more difficult when perhaps they shouldn't be based on the merits of the case. One area of reform, and I I don't know that it's any sort of game changer for being able to remove bad police officers, but it certainly 
would help. It would help civilian political authorities uh, remove bad police officers and deal with police unions with respect to those bad police officers, even conceding the point that that is the rare exception, these bad police officers, not the general rule, as is being misreported, frankly, by the D.C. press corps. So it's just one topic area I wanted to break down a little bit because there is so much uh, blather about it in the public arena for uh, breaking down more of these police reforms and uh, perspective as a career law enforcement officer. We're pleased to be joined again by Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE. Uh, He has written about uh, the reforms that were embedded in Trump's executive order earlier this week. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Well, so why don't we start with your perspective on what was included in Trump's EO and sort of by extension, what sort of flying information with that, which is Tim Scott's legislation in the Senate? Well, look, I think the president has taken a great first step. I think it's it's bold action. He wants to continue to support local law enforcement because he knows that 99 percent of them are the good guys and they join the force for the right reasons. They get up every day to do a job for the right reason. And he understands that there are some problems within law enforcement. So not only is he showing his support for local law enforcement, he wants to make sure we modernize our police practices and upgrade the training, especially when it comes to use of force training and de-escalation. We all go through that. I've been through that numerous times in my law enforcement career. So that, that is something that's like Fourth Amendment training. Those three trainings you can never overdo. Because you, you need to be you know up to date on those and you need to be reminded what you can and can't do. He also supports a database where officers who have used aggressive tactics and found to use violence, uh, police brutality, that, 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 that there will be a record of that that will be kept. And so that way we hold those law enforcement officers accountable, and that way they just can't jump from one law agency to another law agency. Use of force is serious, and we, we need to track that. See, my years of training, use of force has always been the minimum amount of force necessary to get to compliance. So it's an escalation thing, but de-escalation procedures should always be trained. And I think the president's also looking at, you know, rewarding those law enforcement agencies that step up their policies and step up their training to help prevent this type of thing from happening. We'll be able to achieve some Justice Department grants, help them buy equipment, help them get further training. So the administration is clearly prioritizing training and other programs for police and social workers. He wants social workers to work more closely with police to deal with those with mental illness, those with drug addiction, because those are some of the worst interactions you have out there. So I think the president made a great first step. Uh, Georgetown Law Professor Rosa Brooks, I I know you're going to appreciate what she has to say, as you would any Georgetown Law Professor. Uh, She says uh, that we need to stop training the police like they're joining the military it uh, leads to a culture of violence within the police. That's just ridiculous. Like, it's just like when the President Obama took a lot of military equipment away from law enforcement agencies and, and President Trump turned around, which was the right thing. Look, one example, the Los Angeles bank robbery happened about a decade ago. These officers were unarmed. How many officers were shot? Because the bad guy had fully automatic weapons, and the police officers were sitting there with a 12-round clip on their hip, and that's all they got. And look, they're not getting tanks. They're not getting, you know, service to air missiles. The law enforcement officers are just getting like the armored vehicles. So when they approach a dangerous situation, they're protected. They have the right to protect themselves. So it's not a militarization of police. It's about giving police better equipment so they can handle the situation better and hopefully save lives in the process. Hopefully, when you're in an armored vehicle to approach a subject, hopefully that doesn't end in fatality. Where if they're approached with no protection, it may end in fatality. So it's not fatality. So it's not just about militarization is about saving lives and giving them equipment to prevent death. 
So, again, politicians have no idea what they're talking about. They haven't walked the, the steps of the law enforcement officers and see what they deal with every day. These, it really irritates me because these are men and women. This is the finest 1% this country has. These men and women get up every day, leave the safety and security of their home every day, pin that badge on, go out and take whatever they're going to take on, and may not come home that night. How many people are willing to do that? And, again, I'll, I'll give you 1% of them are bad cops. They shouldn't be cops. They should never have been hired as a cop. And that's what President Trump's executive order is doing. He wants, it, he wants better training, better vetting at the beginning to make sure that we keep the bad guys out. But it's like every other profession. Doctors have killed more people than, than the cops. There have been bad priests that have been convicted of child predator offenses. Should we shut down all the churches? Should we shut down all the hospitals because cops have killed people? It's just ridiculous. There's bad people in every profession that we need to address that, but it doesn't mean you tear down the entire profession, the entire institution, which is only going to result in increased crime and increased uh, death. What about the two officers in Atlanta? I think the district attorney overcharged in that case. The district attorney who just last week you know, uh, charged several cops with use of a deadly a deadly instrument when they pulled the college students out of the car. He said that tasers were a deadly uh, weapon. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying tasers aren't a deadly weapon. So, look, again, this officer, you know, this this this, this, this suspect, you know, took his taser. If, if you've never been uh, hit by a taser, again, the district attorney probably never has. I've been through my training. I know what uh, getting, uh, getting tased is like. It 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 puts you. You can't defend yourself once you're hit with a taser. You can't defend yourself. And we've seen all the videos. What happens when you're tased? So this 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 subject turned around and aimed the taser at the officer. This officer took what action he felt was appropriate to save himself. Because once you're incapacitated, you can't defend yourself. What happens then? So I'm not going to say if it was bad or good. I haven't seen all the evidence. I haven't seen all the tapes. But again, people need to put yourself in that position where that person resisted arrest, he fled, he grabbed a weapon, which I think is a deadly weapon. We all know that the cases out there where people have died by getting hit with a taser. So don't tell me it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't incapacitate you at least and, and, and can't kill you at one point. So I think this officer took action in, in, in the fog of uh, a battle, and we'll see what happens. But I think charging murder I thought was a little – much. I don't think he in, intended when he when he approached that scene to kill anybody. Um, but we'll see what happens. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to judge something on just the minimal amount of tape I've seen. I haven't seen all the evidence and all the different types tapes of the views of the tape. But again, here's an officer who made a split second decision about he felt at the time his life was in danger when he saw the taser being pointed at him. Because again, if you're incapacitated, you can't defend yourself. You have a firearm on your hip. He is Tom Homan, former acting director of ICE, a career law enforcement officer. Tom, thanks for joining us uh, again. Appreciate it. All right, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, National Reviews. Kevin Williamson has a most excellent piece on the uh, cultural revolution in its current form in this country. The revolution comforts the comfortable. The class war in our country isn't a matter of the poor versus the rich. It's a matter of the business class versus first class. 
to put it in automotive terms, E-class versus S-class. <laughs> he uh, writes, the uh, scene in uh, militia-occupied Seattle is entirely familiar. The same kind of theatrical filth that has been a part of American counterculture from Woodstock through Occupy Wall Street. These are the idiot children of the American ruling class. Toy radicals and champagne Bolsheviks playing Jacobin for a while until they go back to graduate school. The actual poor, oppressed masses of the world may sometimes live in squalor, but they do not generally live in squalor by choice. For Caitlin from Georgetown, playing poor is the woke version of playing cowboys and Indians, but playing cowboys and Indians would make you a very bad person, even if, like Senator Warren, you choose to be an Indian. There's no revolution in these United States by the poor and the excluded against the rich and powerful. Instead, there's a civil war among certain members of the broad affluent class against their adjacent affluent cohorts. There's no hatred in this world, writes Williamson, quite like the hatred of a $100,000 a year man for a $200,000 a year man, except maybe the hatred of a $2,000 a year man for the $2,002 a year man. Yeah, sort of. But I think he's matching a cultural divide that we've talked about before, and I will continue to uh, to amplify because I think it's the right diagnosis. It's not so much the salary. It's the status. You can guy have a guy who's got a plumbing business who makes uh, seven figures a year, but he doesn't have the status of some liberal art, liberal arts educated uh, Manhattan uh, law firm associate, much less partner, making a quarter of that because he didn't go to the right schools. Maybe he didn't go to any college, didn't go to the right schools, doesn't have the right address not in the right social milieu. So it's a little bit uh, deeper than annual income, but okay. He's, he's onto something. Not quite. Uh, I think the, the clarity versus the yeomanry construct of Joel Kotkin is more on point, but um, Kevin Williamson is uber entertaining and writing about uh, the same people we're talking about. Really the champagne Bolshevik champagne socialists. I call them sentimental barbarians. Toy radicals is a good one too. I like that. Uh, getting back to Williamson, nobody is going to do one GD thing about how they conduct business in Philadelphia or Chicago or any other corrupt Democrat dominated city. There are going to be some new representation and inclusion standards for Oscars eligibility. And we're going to be treated to joy of joys, a deep national discussion on whether some Broadway stars don't quite have it as good as other Broadway stars. The bloody snouted hyenas have looked up from the kill just long enough to announce the creation of the Goldman Sachs fund for racial equity. (laughs) What he has properly diagnosed, beautifully diagnosed, vividly diagnosed is, you know, how insular this quote unquote revolution really is and who it's being driven by, you know, how narrow are the parameters of discussion and, frankly, infirmed are the intellects driving it. It's always the same thing, writes Williamson. Our newspapers are full of intense interest in Harvard's admission standards, but have very little to say about New York City's dropout rate. Mm, Perfect. I mean, that's a gut shot, isn't it? full of intense interest in Harvard's admission standards, but have very little to say about New York City's dropout rate. 
people can't help being fascinated with themselves and their peers. If you want to know what is on the mind of the leaders of the American ruling class, it's no secret. They'll tell you if you ask and if you don't. George Floyd is still dead. Jacob Fry is still the mayor of Minneapolis. Madaria Arredondo is still the chief of police. More than a third of black students will drop out of high school in Milwaukee. But hey, Forbes has announced a change in its in-house style book and will henceforth honor the woke convention of uppercase black versus lowercase white. And George Floyd is still dead. Jacob Fry is still mayor of Minneapolis. Madaria Arredondo is still the chief of police. Oh, but they got James Bennett, the opinion editor at the New York Times. And that's something. Mm -hmm. For daring to publish the Tom Cotton op-ed on the use of military to quell the rioting. Well-off white women from elite colleges run the diversity and sensitivity racket like the 17th century Dutch ran the tulip racket. Like the De Beers cartel used to run diamonds. Big Caitlin is getting paid. (laughs) Oh, this is just delicious. Affluent white women are the main E-class beneficiaries of the current headhunting project to clear a little room at the top, writes Williamson. Just as they have been historically the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action programs, contracting set-asides and other programs to help out the poor, disenfranchised Georgetown alumni out there in the cold and dark. And uh, that's uh, consistent with the discussion we had on yesterday's show with uh, entrepreneur Robert Blackwell talking about who you perceive as being helped by these set-aside programs and uh, affirmative action programs and who's actually feasting on them. And yet George Floyd is still dead. Jacob Fry is still the mayor of Minneapolis. Madaria Arredondo is still the chief of police. You get the tempo of the piece yet? But Kathleen Kingsbury, do I have to tell you she's from Portland? She's from Portland has moved up a step at the New York Times and promises not to publish any opinions someone might have an opinion about. And George Floyd is still dead. And Jacob Fry is still the mayor of Minneapolis. And Madaria Arredondo is still the chief of police. Uh, There's a great series called Boss, uh, starring Kelsey Grammer as the mayor of Chicago. It was on Stars Channel a few years ago. Unfortunately, it only ran a couple of seasons, but it merited a longer run. Nonetheless, it was about 15 degrees, maybe not even, hyperbolic of the Chicago political culture. And, you know, the the machine boss running the city. Not unique to Chicago, but there's some unique aspects of it to Chicago's history. Uh, There's a phrase that was used by the Pauls in that series that is just pitch perfect, spot on. And it describes what Ke- Kevin Williamson is describing uh, because it describes reality in big urban cities. Reality for 50 years, for 100 years. The phrase, change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. Change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. And this is what Williamson is getting to with all of this tumult and what's changed. George Floyd's still dead. Jacob Fry is still the mayor of Minneapolis. Madario Arredondo is still the chief of police. Change on the outside to protect continuity on the inside. Those in positions of authority, those with status, and those ruling class scions maintain their position, regardless of what you see happening on the streets, 
what the media is reporting because, of course, the the media, most of the members of the media are part of that same strata. Just an excellent piece by Kevin Williamson. I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show for your thoughtful consideration. This is Dan Prof. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, a uh, really compelling piece at uh, Tablet Magazine, tabletmag.com, by Isabella Tabarovsky, who's a researcher with the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center, focusing on the politics of historical memory in the former Soviet Union. Hmm. Perhaps a good training ground for a similar institute on 20 and 21st century America. Russians are fond of quoting Sergei Dovlatov, a dissident Soviet writer who emigrated to the United States in 1979, who said, we continuously curse comrade Stalin and naturally with good reason. And yet I want to ask who wrote 4 million denunciations? It wasn't the fearsome heads of Soviet secret police who did that, writes the author. It was ordinary people. Collective demonizations of prominent central figures were an integral part of the Soviet culture of denunciation that pervaded every workplace and apartment building. And Ms. Uh, Tabarovsky goes through the witch hunt targeting Dr. Shivago author Boris Pasternak to put a fine point on it. Really excellent piece. I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Uh, She concludes her piece. Americans have discovered the way in which fear of collective disapproval breeds self-censorship and silence, which impoverish public life and creative work. The double life one ends up leading, one where there's a growing gap between one's public and private selves, eventually begins to feel oppressive. For a significant portion of the Soviet intelligentsia, the burden of leading the double life played an important role in their deciding to emigrate. Those who join in the hounding face their own hazards. The more loyalty you pledge to the to a group or the group that expects you to participate in rituals of collective demonization, the more it will ask of you and the more you, too, will feel controlled. How much of your own autonomy as a thinking, feeling person are you willing to sacrifice to the collective? What inner compromises are you willing to make for the sake of being part of the group? Which personal relationships are you willing to give up? All questions I don't think uh, many in uh, the autonomous zone in the center of Seattle are contemplating at the moment. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at Ricochet and contributor to azcentral.com. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on. What about uh, the, you know, cancel culture, I think, is a bit too euphemistic in terms of the purge that's going on. I, I like the comparison to, you know, the Soviet denunciations that were, uh, that 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 were issued uh, by ordinary people, not by just the small group of intelligentsia. Right. It, it's um, kind of a weird corollary to the Puritans several hundred years ago, where they were forced to say what they believed in. Now we're supposed to say what we don't believe and what we hate. And uh, it's this weird reverse image uh, religion that they seem to have going on, where. Instead of having an object that you worship, you just have a whole bunch of objects you need to just hurl hatred at. It's really creepy and uh, 
bizarre development and uh it's upsetting to see how many americans just kind of join in a lot of them of course are afraid for their job or uh losing their latest acting gig or whatever it might be but uh just to be so willing to denounce everybody around them is strange to see well and a key point to what you said is um that you're forced to comment, you are forced to engage. Silence is unacceptable. Silence is violence. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, yeah, real violence isn't violence anymore, but uh, not talking, minding your own business, um, they they are casting as being a violent thing, and I've seen it all around, uh, especially among people who are already kind of left-leaning. That's another thing that's kind of interesting if you – Go back and look at uh, a situation like The Shining Path in Peru. Uh, They didn't go after the far right. They went after kind of the central left. That that was their main enemy because they wanted to heighten the contradictions. And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing these uh, kind of um, center-left organizations or semi-woke organizations that are just kind of trying to get along, make a buck. Those are the ones being targeted and being made to – denounce themselves, to fire employees, to apologize repeatedly because they basically say, well, we kind of have a sucker here and uh, we're just going to bleed them dry. So um, you'd think they would learn pretty quickly to kind of get out of this uh, wolf posturing thing because it's turning very dark. Uh, When we come back with John Gabriel, I want to uh, talk a little bit, speaking of darkness, uh, big tech and uh, Google. Uh, uh, along with NBC News's effort to uh, eliminate a conservative media outlet. Uh, Google seems to really be spoiling for that antitrust uh, prosecution. John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com. We'll be back with him right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Speaking with John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com and contributor to azcentral.com. And, and John, uh, he, you know, here we are uh, five months before an election and uh, a lot of uh, the discussion of the potential that big tech has to influence the outcome of the election that was uh, uh, really a significant part of the political dialogue last summer has dissipated against the backdrop of the civil unrest and the the response to the pandemic. But perhaps uh, what Google did vis-a-vis the Federalist, uh, federalist Federalist.com, may resuscitate some of it because – it certainly got the attention of Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, Google's uh, seeming indifference to their uh, uh, liability protection and seeming indifference to an antitrust prosecution that may be forthcoming, that uh, they're willing to uh, make such sacrifices in order to silence conservatives and advance the cause of Democrat socialists on November 3rd. Yeah, it, it really feels to me, going back to kind of the historical example, it seems like a lot of people in big tech are uh, preparing the battlefield for November 2020. They're just trying to set it up to hamstring 
anyone from the center right and on, anybody who just kind of doesn't buy the prevailing, you know, leftist orthodoxy, they're just trying to punish them. They're trying to hamstring them. They're trying to silence them any way they can. We've seen many, many organizations are just being targeted to basically act as a warning to others, saying you better support our beliefs or we're going to demonetize, we're going to hurt you. The Federalist um, got so much attention for this. I think they will end up being fine. But it is a, uh, a chilling blow to anybody who runs their little blog or is commenting on other sites. Maybe they're making YouTube videos. Those are often demonetized as well because they don't toe the party line. And it's uh, very disturbing uh, to see a company doing this. Meanwhile, Google is out there very eager to silence uh, Uyghurs in China and all these different oppressed groups, uh, pro-democracy groups and the like, just to kowtow, as it were, to the Chinese. Well, uh, it's a, and it's, now they're just trying to silence people here at home. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, if they're willing to align with the Chicoms, then why wouldn't they be willing to align with the, uh, the you know, the, the the American version of the Jacobins? And they seem willing to. And, uh, you know, yes, the Federalists uh, will probably survive because of the attention it got. But what are the real consequences? I mean, we had Matt Taibbi on the show uh, a little bit earlier and, uh, you know, he's he's been marginalized because he's dared to speak out against the Russian collusion narrative. He's dared to speak out against the uh, lack of journalistic standards uh, or ethics uh, among the left of what the left has become, calling them, you know, Twitterian Robespierre's and so forth. So he, he's been marginalized in terms of his acceptance within within that realm. And he documents other stories of people who have had their careers ended, at, you know, too. James Bennett, The New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, editor. Uh, So why wouldn't they go after and just shut down conservative outlets and maybe shut them down uh, right before the November election when there's no time to react? There's no time to marshal public opinion or public pressure on them. I think it's something that I'm glad uh, Senator Hawley is looking into this now because the pressures have to be kept on pretty much nonstop because you can see this doing this all the way through November and as you note, you know, they could be doing this the weekend before the election day itself, cause all sorts of problems. You know, well, we're going to suspend Facebook advertising or we're going to deplatform, you know, kick these people off the Web for a couple of days. And that's tampering with an election for all they're complaining about this phantom uh, Russian interference, which tipped the election to Trump in their fantasy. They're trying to do the same thing. And it's very disturbing to see you know, what would be called American companies being so un-American and how they're behaving. It's really disgusting. Uh, Earlier this hour, we talked to former ICE director Tom Homan about Trump's executive order on police reform. That was followed up yesterday, of course, by Tim Scott and Senate Republicans legislative proposal, which is uh, in many ways similar to sort of the broad outlines of the Trump executive order. Uh, Police reforms, you think, that uh, are sensible regardless of whether the mob or the residents, the citizens, I should say, of Chaz think they're sensible, uh, that conservatives and Republicans should be advancing uh, before November? Yeah, there are several things that have been uh, kind of sitting around, and I think the goal has to be, you know, the left wants to defund and dismantle the police and things like that. And I think what most conservatives want, we want uh, people who are doing a great job to be promoted, and we want the few people who are doing a bad job to be kicked off the force. I, I kind of compare it a lot to public school teachers. 
A lot of most of them are great. Some of them are absolutely superb and excellent. But you have to get rid of the bad apples, and the the people who are protecting these bad apples are the police unions. And one good way to kind of uh, cut down on this is there's something called release time that most cities have, and it's where they pay police officers to work full time on union. Um, issues. And uh, a lot of that is protecting bad actors in the force. But it's just very odd to see taxpayers paying for union dues, essentially, and people doing uh, different union activities instead of being out there and patrolling the streets. So I think there are ways that we can um, get rid of some of the worst excesses. And uh, I, I think it's something that good police officers, who are the majority, would be happy to see happen because um, when you have a union protecting the bad actors, it makes all the rest of the cops look bad. And and, and this would be incentivizing uh, reforms at the local level by tying it to federal funding the way that uh, Trump uh, outlined it in his executive order, too, because we still, as uh, federalists and as uh, uh, subsidiarists, if you will, uh, want uh, you know the federal government to stay within its province and state and local government to do its job. Absolutely. And that's something that you see from the left about wanting to federalize the police. Um, we see that south of the border. <laughs> that's, that's not a good thing. We yeah. don't have a bunch of federales kind of uh, patrolling the entire country from a small town in Arkansas to the Bronx. It's just a bad solution, and it needs to be under local control. And I think it would really help police officers being more tied to their community um, not just receiving mandates and directives from on high in Washington, D.C. This is the best reforms of this. You know, government can kind of help around the edges, but I think the best reforms are really going to come uh, from the ground up in, you know, police departments around the country. And if the larger Democratic-run cities aren't interested in doing it, you can have the Republican-run cities lead the way and show how reform can work. He is John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com, contributor to azcentral.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked a little bit about uh, Senator Tim Scott's police reform legislation yesterday that he rolled out uh, in concert with Senate Republicans, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Well, this was how it was received by uh, one of the Senate Democrats' longtime attack dogs. Of course, he hails from Illinois, Senator Dick Sack of Durbin. For 400 years, that's how long slavery it's been since slavery came to our shores, and the racism that followed from it, was part of it, is still very much alive in America, and seen in video after video. And these younger people are telling us once and for all, change it, grown-ups. You're supposed to be in charge. You're supposed to have the authority. So what we say on the Democratic side is we cannot waste this historic moment, this singular opportunity. Let's not do something that is a token, <coughs> half-hearted approach. Excuse me. Let's focus instead on making a change that will make a difference in the future of America. Yeah, token. Tim Scott's token legislation. Well, uh, Tim Scott took to the Senate floor to respond to that characterization. He didn't answer. 
because he was already dead. To think that on this day, as we try to make sure that fewer people lose confidence in this nation to have the senator from Illinois refer to this process, this bill, this, this opportunity to restore hope and, and confidence and trust from the American people, from African Americans, from communities of color, to call this a token process hurts my soul. So in response to that, I think, rightful indignation by Scott, you got uh, one of those uh, customary non-apology apologies from Durbin. He took the word token as an offensive word. I went up to him on the floor and I said, Tim, I respect you and like you so much. If it offended you, I apologize. If it offended you, I apologize. (laughs) If you thought what I did was wrong, then I apologize because uh, I don't have the capacity to make any moral judgments about what I did or didn't do. Uh, Remember who we're talking about here? This from the uh, archives of Dick Durbin's greatest hits. I mean, he is just one of the most despicable people in politics. One of the most craven right there with Tim Kaine, who we discussed yesterday, a stiff competition among Democrat socialists. This was Dick Durbin back, uh, oh, about 15 years ago, talking about uh, our military men and women at Gitmo. Remember this? If I read this to you and didn't tell you that it was an FBI agent describing what Americans had done to prisoners in their control, you would most certainly believe this must have happened by Nazis, Soviets in their gulags, or some mad regime, Pol Pot or others, that had no concern for human beings. Sadly, that's not the case. This was the action of Americans in in treatment of their own prisoners. Uh, comparing American military men and women to Soviet commissars and Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge. That's Dick Durbin. But again, when you're a member of the uh, left in good standing, that means never having to say you're sorry or at least not mean it. You can just offer one of those half-ass, half-hearted apologies Durbin offered to Tim Scott yesterday. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow to close out the week. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.